Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, two stories from author Robert Barr. The first story, A Ladies' Man. And the second story, a shorter story, A Case of Fever. We hope you enjoy them both. I do not wish to particularize any of the steamers on which the incidents given in this book occurred, so the boat of which I now write I shall call The Tub. This does not sound very flattering to the steamer, but I must say the tub was a comfortable old boat, as everybody will testify who has ever taken a voyage in her. I know a very rich man who can well afford to take the best room in the best steamer if he wants to, but his preference always is for a slow boat like the tub. He says that if you're not in a hurry, a slow boat is preferable to one of the fast new liners, because you have more individuality there, you get more attention, the officers are flattered by your preference for their ship, and you are not merely one of a great mob of passengers as in a crowded fast liner. The officers on a popular big and swift boat are prone to be a trifle snobbish. This is especially the case on the particular liner which for the moment stands at the top, a steamer that has broken the record and is considered the best boat in the Atlantic service for the time being. If you get a word from the captain of such a boat, you may consider yourself a peculiarly honored individual, and even the purser is apt to answer you very shortly, and make you feel you are but a worm of the dust, even though you have paid a very large price for your stateroom. On the tub there was nothing of this. The officers were genial good fellows who admitted their boat was not the fastest on the Atlantic, although at one time she had been. But if the tub never broke the record, on the other hand, she never broke a shaft, and so things were evened up. She wallowed her way across the Atlantic in a leisurely manner, and there was no feverish anxiety among the passengers when they reached Queenstown, the anxiety being caused by their trying to find whether the rival boat had got in ahead of us or not. Everybody on board the tub knew that any vessel which started from New York the same day would reach Queenstown before us. In fact, a good smart sailing vessel with a fair wind might have made it lively for us in an ocean race. The tub was a broad, slow boat, whose great specialty was freight, and her very broadness, which kept her from being a racer, even if her engines had had the power, made her particularly comfortable in a storm. She rolled but little, and as the staterooms were large and airy, every passenger on board the tub was sure of a reasonably pleasant voyage. It was always amusing to hear the reasons each of the passengers gave for being on board the tub. A fast and splendid liner of an opposition company left New York the next day, and many of our passengers explained to me they had come to New York with the intention of going by that boat, but they found all the rooms taken, that is, all the desirable rooms. Of course, they might have had a room down on the third deck, but they were accustomed in traveling to have the best rooms, and if they couldn't be had, why, it didn't much matter what was given them. So that was the reason they took passage on the tub. Others were on the boat because they remembered the time when she was one of the fastest on the ocean, and they didn't like changing ships. Others, again, were particular friends of the captain, and he would have been annoyed if they'd taken any other steamer. Everybody had some particularly valid reason for choosing the tub, that is, every reason except economy, for it was well known that the tub was one of the cheapest boats crossing the ocean. For my own part, I crossed on her because the purser was a particular friend of mine, and knew how to amalgamate fluids and different solid substances in a manner that produced a very palatable refreshment. 
"'He has himself deserted the tub long ago, "'and is now a purser on one of the new boats of the same line. "'When the gong rang for the first meal on board the tub, "'after leaving New York, "'we filed down from the smoking-room to the great saloon "'to take our places at the table. "'There were never enough passengers on board the tub "'to cause a great rush for places at the table. "'But on this particular occasion, "'when we reached the foot of the stairway, two or three of us stood for a moment "'both appalled and entranced.' Sitting at the captain's right hand was a somewhat sour and unattractive elderly woman who was talking to that smiling and urbane official. Down the long table from where she sat, in the next fifteen seats, were fifteen young and pretty girls, most of them looking smilingly and expectantly toward the stairway down which we were descending. The elderly woman paused for a moment in her conversation with the captain, glanced along the line of beauty, said sharply, "'Girls!' and instantly every face was turned demurely toward the plate that was in front of it, and then we, who had hesitated for a moment on the stairway, at once made a break, not for our seats at the table, but for the purser. "'It's all right, gentlemen,' said that charming man before we could speak. "'It's all right. I've arranged your places down the table on the opposite side. You don't need to say a word, and those of you who want to change from the small tables to the large one will find your names on the long table as well as at the small tables.' "'where you have already chosen your places. "'So, you see, I knew just how you wished things arranged. "'But,' he continued, lowering his voice, "'Boys, there's a dragon in charge. "'I know her. "'She's crossed with us two or three times. "'She wanted me to arrange it so that fifteen ladies "'should sit opposite her fifteen girls. "'But, of course, we couldn't do that "'because there aren't fifteen other ladies on board.' and there had to be one or two ladies placed next to the girls at the foot of the table, so that no girl should have a young man sitting beside her. I've done the best I could, gentlemen, and if you want the seats rearranged, I think we can manage it for you. Individual preferences may crop up, you know. And the purser smiled gently, for he had crossed the ocean very, very often. We all took our places, sternly scrutinized by the lady, whom the purser had flatteringly termed the dragon. She evidently didn't think very much of us as a crowd, and I'm sure in my own heart I cannot blame her. We were principally students going over to German colleges on the cheap, some commercial travelers, and a crowd generally who could not afford to take a better boat, although we had all just missed the fast liner that had left a few days before, or had for some reason just not succeeded in securing a berth on the fast boat, which was to leave the day after. If any of the fifteen young ladies were aware of our presence— "'They did not show it by glancing toward us. "'They seemed to confine their conversation to whispers among themselves, "'and now and then a little suppressed giggle arose from one part of the line or the other, "'upon which the dragon looked along the row and said severely, "'Girls?' "'Whereupon everything was quiet again, "'although some independent young lady generally broke the silence by another giggle, "'just at the time the stillness was becoming the most oppressive. "'After dinner, in the smoking-room, "'there was a great deal of discussion about the fifteen pretty girls "'and about the dragon. "'As the officers on board the tub were gentlemen "'whom an ordinary person might speak to, "'a delegation of one was deputed to go to the purser's room "'and find out all that could be learned "'in relation to the young and lovely passengers. "'The purser said that the dragon's name was Mrs. Scribner Yapling, "'with a hyphen. "'The hyphen was a very important part of the name, "'and Mrs. Scribner hyphen Yapling always insisted upon it. Anyone who ignored that hyphen speedily fell from the good graces of Mrs. Scribner Yapling. I regret to say, however, in spite of the hyphen, 
the lady was very generally known as the dragon during that voyage. The purser told us further that Mrs. Scrivener Yapling was in the habit of coming over once a year with a party of girls whom she trotted around Europe. The idea was that they learned a great deal of geography, a good deal of French and German, and received in a general way a polish which Europe is supposed to give. The circular which Mrs. Scribner Yapling issued was shown to me once by one of the girls, and it represented that all traveling was first class, that nothing but the very best accommodations on steamers and in hotels was provided, and on account of Mrs. S.Y.'s intimate knowledge of Europe and the different languages spoken there, she managed the excursion in a way which anyone else would find impossible to emulate, and the advantages occurring from such a trip could not be obtained in any other manner without a very much larger expenditure of money. The girls had the advantage of motherly care during all the time they were abroad, and as the party was strictly limited in number, and the greatest care taken to select members only from the very best families in America, Mrs. Scribner Yapling was certain that all her patrons would realize that this was an opportunity of a lifetime, etc., etc. Even if the tub were not the finest boat on the Atlantic, she certainly belonged to one of the best lines, and as the circular mentioned, the line, and not the particular vessel on which the excursion was to go, was the whole thing that all combined had a very high-class appearance. The first morning out, shortly after breakfast, the dragon and her girls appeared on deck, the girls walked two and two together and kept their eyes pretty much on the planks beneath them. The fifteenth girl walked with the dragon, and thus the eight pairs paced slowly up and down the deck under the dragon's eye. When this morning promenade was over, the young ladies were marshaled into the ladies' saloon, where no masculine foot was allowed to tread. Shortly before lunch, an indignation meeting was held in the smoking room. Stuart Montague, a commercial traveler from Milwaukee, said that he had crossed the ocean many times, but had never seen such a state of things before. This young lady's seminary business, he alluded to the two-and-two two walk along the deck, ought not to be permitted on any well-regulated ship. Here were a number of young ladies, ranging in age from eighteen upwards, and there lay ahead of us a long and possibly dreary voyage. Yet the dragon evidently expected that not one of the young ladies was to be allowed to speak to one of the young gentlemen on board." much less walk the deck with him. Now for his part, said Steward Montague, he was going to take off his hat the next morning to the young lady who sat opposite him at the dinner table and boldly ask her to walk the deck with him. If the dragon interfered, he proposed that we all mutiny, seize the vessel, put the captain in irons, imprison the dragon in the hold, and then take the pirating on the high seas. One of the others pointed out to him an objection to this plan "'claiming that the tub could not overtake anything but a sailing vessel, "'while even that was doubtful. "'Montague explained that the mutiny was only to be resorted to "'as a last desperate chance. "'He believed the officers of the boat would give us every assistance possible, "'so it was only in case of everything else falling apart "'that we should seize the ship. "'In a moment of temporary aberration, "'I suggested that the dragon might not be, after all, "'such an objectionable person as she appeared, "'and that perhaps she could be won over by kindness.' Instantly a motion was put, and carried unanimously, appointing me a committee to try the effect of kindness on the dragon. It was further resolved that the meeting should be adjourned, and I should report progress at the next conclave. I respectfully declined this mission. I said it was none of my affair. I didn't wish to talk to any of the fifteen girls, or even walk the deck with them. I was perfectly satisfied as I was. 
I saw no reason why I should sacrifice myself for the good of the others. I suggested that the name of Stuart Montague be substituted for mine, and that he should face the dragon and report progress. Mr. Montague said it had been my suggestion, not his, that the dragon might be overcome by kindness. He did not believe she could, but he was quite willing to suspend hostilities until my plan had been tried and the result reported to the meeting. It was only when they brought in a motion to expel me from the smoking room that I succumbed to the pressure. The voyage was just beginning, and what's a voyage to a smoker who dare not set foot in the smoking room? I do not care to dwell on the painful interview I had with the dragon. I put my foot in it at the very first by pretending that I thought she came from New York, whereas she had really come from Boston. To take a New York person for a Bostonian is flattery, but to reverse that order of things especially with the woman of the uncertain temper of Mrs. Scribner Yapling, was really a deadly insult. And I fear this helped to shipwreck my mission, although I presume it would have been shipwrecked in any case. Mrs. Scribner Yapling gave me to understand that if there was one thing more than another she excelled in, it was the reading of character. She knew at a glance whether a man could be trusted or not, and most men were not, I gathered from her conversation. It seems she had taken a great many voyages across the Atlantic, and never in the whole course of her experience had she seen such an objectionable body of young men as on this present occasion. She accused me of being a married man, and I surmised that there were other iniquities of which she strongly suspected me. The mission was not a success, and I reported at the adjourned meeting accordingly. Mr. Stuart Montague gave it as his opinion that the mission was hopeless from the first, and in this I quite agreed with him. He said he would try his plan at dinner, but what his plan was he refused to state. We asked if he would report on the success or failure, and he answered that we would all see whether it was a success or failure for ourselves. So there was a good deal of interest centering around the meal, an interest not altogether called forth by the pangs of hunger. Dinner had hardly commenced when Mr. Stuart Montague leaned over the table and said, in quite an audible voice, "'to the young lady opposite him. "'I understand you've never been over the ocean before.' "'The young lady looked just a trifle frightened, "'blushed very prettily, "'and answered in a low voice that she had not. "'Then he said, "'I envy you the first impressions you will have of Europe. "'It is a charming country. "'Where do you go after leaving England?' "'We are going across to Paris first, she replied, "'still in a low voice. "'Most of us, however, were looking at the dragon. That lady sat bolt upright in her chair as if she could not believe her ears. Then she said in an acid voice, Miss Fleming. Yes, Mrs. Scribner Yapling, answered the young lady. Will you oblige me by coming here for a moment? Miss Fleming slowly revolved in her circular chair, then rose and walked up to the head of the table. Miss Strong, "'said the dragon, calmly, to the young lady who sat beside her. "'Will you oblige me by taking Miss Fleming's place at the center of the table?' "'Miss Strong rose and took Miss Fleming's place. "'Sit down beside me, please,' said the dragon to Miss Fleming, "'and that unfortunate young woman, now as red as a rose, "'sat down beside the dragon. "'Steward Montague bit his lip. "'The rest of us said nothing.' "'and appeared not to notice what had occurred. "'Conversation went on among ourselves. "'The incident seemed ended, but, when the fish was brought "'and placed before Miss Fleming, she did not touch it. 
Her eyes were still upon the table. Then, apparently unable to struggle any longer with her emotions, she rose gracefully and, bowing to the captain, said, "'Excuse me, please.' She walked down the long saloon with a firm step and disappeared. The dragon tried to resume conversation with the captain as if nothing had happened, but that official answered only in monosyllables, and a gloom seemed to have settled down upon the dinner party. Very soon the captain rose and excused himself. There was something to attend to on deck, he said, and he left us. We'll return to our story right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our story. As soon as we had reassembled in the smoking room, and the steward had brought in our cups of black coffee, Stuart Montague arose and said, "'Gentlemen, I know just what you're going to say to me. It was brutal. Of course, I didn't think the dragon would do such a thing. My plan was a complete failure. I expected that conversation would take place across the table, all along the line, if I just broke the ice.' Whatever opinions were held, none found expression, and that evening in the smoking room was as gloomy as the hour at the dinner table. Towards the shank of the evening, a gentleman, who had never been in the smoking room before, entered very quietly. We recognized him as the man who sat to the left of the captain opposite the dragon. He was a man of middle age and of somewhat severe aspect. He spoke with deliberation when he did speak, and evidently weighed his words. All we knew of him was that the chair beside his at mealtimes had been empty since the voyage began, and it was said that his wife took her meals in her stateroom. She had appeared once on deck with him, very closely veiled, and hung upon his arm in a way that showed she was not standing the voyage very well, pleasant as it had been. "'Gentlemen,' began the man, suavely, "'I would like to say a few words to you if I were certain that my remarks would be taken in the spirit in which they are given.' "'and that you would not think me intrusive or impertinent.' "'Go ahead,' said Montague, gloomily, "'who evidently felt a premonition of coming trouble. "'The serious individual waited until the steward had left the room. "'Then he closed the door. "'Gentlemen,' he continued, "'I will not recur to the painful incident "'which happened to me at the dinner-table tonight further "'than by asking you, as honorable men, "'to think of Miss Scribner Yapling's position of great responsibility. "'She stands in the place of a mother to a number of young ladies "'who, for the first time in their lives, have left their homes.' "'Lord pity them,' said somebody who was sitting in the corner. "'The gentleman paid no attention to the remark. "'Now, what I wish to ask of you "'is that you will not make Miss Scribner Yapling's position "'any harder by futile endeavors "'to form the acquaintance of the young ladies.' At this point, Steward Montague broke out. "'Who the devil are you, sir? And who gave you the right to interfere?' "'As to who I am,' said the gentleman, quietly, "'my name is Kensington, and—' "'West or South?' asked the man in the corner. At this there was a titter of laughter. "'My name is Kensington,' repeated the gentleman, "'and I've been asked by Mrs. Scribner Yapling to interfere, which I do very reluctantly.' "'As I said at the beginning, "'I hope you will not think my interference is impertinent. "'I only do so at the earnest request of the lady I have mentioned, "'because I am a family man myself, "'and I understand and sympathize with the lady "'in the responsibility which she has assumed.' "'It seems to me,' said the man in the corner, "'that if the dragon has assumed responsibilities, 
"'and they have not been thrust upon her, "'which I understand they have not, "'that she must take the responsibility "'of the responsibilities which she has assumed. "'Do I make myself clear?' "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Kensington, "'it's very painful for me to speak with you upon this subject. "'I feel that what I have so clumsily expressed "'may not be correctly understood, "'but I appeal to your honor as gentlemen, "'and I am sure I will not appeal in vain "'when I ask you not to make further effort "'towards the acquaintance of the young ladies, "'because all that you can succeed in doing "'will be to render their voyage unpleasant to themselves "'and interrupt, if not seriously in danger.' "'the good feeling which I understand has always existed "'between Miss Scrivener Yapling and her protégés.' "'All right,' said the man in the corner. "'Have a drink, Mr. Kensington?' "'No, thank you. I never drink,' answered Mr. Kensington. "'Have a smoke, then.' "'I do not smoke either. Thank you all the same for your offer. "'I hope, gentlemen, you will forgive my intrusion on you this evening. "'Good night.' "'Impudent puppy!' "'said Stuart Montague as he closed the door behind him. "'But in this we did not agree with him, "'not even the man in the corner. "'He is perfectly right,' said that individual, "'and I believe that we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. "'We'll only make trouble, "'and I for one am going to give up the hunt.' "'So, from that time forward, "'the smoking room collectively made no effort "'towards the acquaintance of the young ladies. "'The ladies' seminary walk, as it was called, "'took place every morning punctually.' "'and sometimes Mr. Kensington accompanied the walkers. "'Nevertheless, individual friendships, "'in spite of everything that either Mr. Kensington "'or the dragon could do, "'sprang up between some of the young men "'and some of the girls, "'but the dragon had an invaluable ally in Mr. Kensington. "'The moment any of the young ladies "'began walking with any of the young gentlemen on deck, "'or the moment they seated themselves "'in steamer chairs together, "'the urbane, always polite Mr. Kensington "'appeared on the scene and said, uh, "'Miss So-and-so, Mrs. Scribner-Yapling would like to speak with you.' "'Then the young lady would go with Mr. Kensington, "'while the young gentleman was apt to use strong language and gnash his teeth. "'Mr. Kensington seemed lynx-eyed. "'There was no escaping him. "'Many in the smoking-room, no doubt, "'would have liked to have picked a flaw in his character if they could. "'One even spoke of the old chestnut "'about a man who had no small vices, "'being certain to have some very large ones. "'But even the speakers themselves did not believe this.' "'and anyone could see at a glance "'that Mr. Kensington was a man of sterling character. "'Some hinted that his wife was the victim of his cruelty "'and kept her stateroom only because she knew "'that he was so fond of the dragon's company "'and possibly that of some of the young ladies as well. "'But this grotesque sentiment did not pass current "'even in the smoking-room. "'Nevertheless, although he was evidently so good a man, "'he was certainly the most unpopular individual "'on board the tub.' The hatred that Stuart Montague felt for him ever since that episode in the smoking-room was almost grotesque. Montague had somehow managed to get a contrite note of apology and distress to Miss Fleming, and several times the alert Mr. Kensington had caught them together, and asked Miss Fleming with the utmost respect to come down and see Mrs. Scribner Yapling. All in all, the dragon did not have a very easy time of it. She fussed around like any other old hen who had in charge a brood of ducks, once I thought there was going to be a row between Montague and Kensington. He met that gentleman in a secluded part of the deck, and going up to him said, You old wife deserter, why can't you attend to your own affairs? Kensington turned deadly pale at this insult, and his fists clenched. What do you mean? he said, huskily. 
I mean what I say. Why don't you take your own wife walking on the deck and leave the young ladies alone? It's none of your business with whom they walk. Kensington seemed about to reply, but he thought better of it, turned on his heel, and left Montague standing there. The old tub worried her way across the ocean and reached the bar at Liverpool just in time to be too late to cross it that night. Word was passed along that a tender would come out from Liverpool for us, which was not a very cheering prospect, as we would have two hours' sail at least in what was practically an open boat. Finally the tender came alongside, and the baggage was dumped down upon it. All of us gathered together ready to leave the tub. Mr. Kensington, with his closely veiled wife hanging on his arm, was receiving the thanks and congratulations of the dragon. The fifteen girls were all around her. Before anyone started down the sloping gangway plank, however, two policemen, accompanied by a woman, hurried up on board the tub. "'Now, madam,' said the policeman, "'is he here?' We saw the trouble was coming, and everybody looked at everybody else. "'Is he here?' cried the woman excitedly. "'There he stands, the villain! "'Oh, you villain! "'You scoundrel! "'You mean rascal! "'To leave me, as you thought, penniless in New York!' "'and desert your own wife and family for that? "'That creature!' "'We all looked at Kensington, "'and his face was greenish pale. "'The heavily veiled woman shrunk behind him, "'and the policeman tried to make the true wife keep quiet. "'Is your name Broughton?' "'Kensington did not answer. "'His eyes were riveted on his wife. "'In the name of God!' he cried aghast. "'How did you come here? "'How did I come here?' she shrieked. "'Oh, you thought you slipped away nicely, didn't you? "'But you forgot that the clipper left the next day, "'and I've been here two days waiting for you. "'You little thought when you deserted me and my children in New York "'that we would be here to confront you at Liverpool.' "'Come, come,' said the policeman. "'There's no use of this. "'I'm afraid you will have to come with us, sir.' "'They took him in charge, "'and the irate wife then turned like a tigress "'on the heavily veiled woman who was with him. "'No wonder you're ashamed to show your face,' she cried. "'Come, come,' said the policeman. "'Come.' And they managed to induce her to say no more. "'Madam,' said young Montague to the speechless dragon, "'I want to ask you permission to allow me to carry Miss Fleming's handbaggage ashore.' "'How dare you speak to me, sir?' she answered. "'Because,' he said, in a low voice, "'I thought perhaps you wouldn't like an account of this affair going to the Boston newspapers. "'I'm a newspaper man, you see,' he added, with unblushing mendacity. Then, turning to Miss Fleming, he said, "'Won't you allow me to carry this for you?' Miss Fleming surrendered the natty little handbag she had with her and smiled. The dragon made no objection. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Stay tuned for our second Robert Barr story, A Case of Fever. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today's story is A Case of Fever by Robert Barr. Barr was a Scottish-Canadian-English novelist and short story author who also published under the pen name Luke Smart. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and emigrated to Canada with his parents in 1853 when he was four years old. His favorite genre was crime, but he covered all the bases, and his short stories are good. I hope you enjoyed this one. Oh, underneath the blood-red sun... No bloodier deed was ever done, nor fiercer retribution sought, the hand that first red ruin wrought. This is the doctor's story.
The doctors on board the Atlantic liners were usually young men. They are good-looking and entertaining as well, and generally they can play the violin or some other instrument that is of great use at the inevitable concert which takes place about the middle of the Atlantic. They are urbane, polite young men, and they chat pleasantly and nicely to the ladies on board. I believe that the doctor on the transatlantic steamer has to be there on account of the steerage passengers. Of course, the doctor goes to the steerage, but I imagine, as a general thing, he does not spend any more time there than the rules of service compel him to. The ladies, at least, would be unanimous in saying that the doctor is one of the most charming officials on board the ship. This doctor, who tells the story I am about to relate, was not like the usual Atlantic position. He was older than the average, and, to judge by his somewhat haggard, rugged face, had seen hard times and rough usage in different parts of the world. Why he came to settle down on an Atlantic steamer, a berth which is a starting point rather than a terminus, I have no means of knowing. He never told us, but there he was, and one night, as he smoked his pipe with us in the smoking room, we closed the door and compelled him to tell us a story. As a preliminary, he took out of his inside pocket a book from which he selected a slip of creased paper which had been there so long that it was rather the worse for wear and had to be tenderly handled. As a beginning, said the doctor, I will read you what this slip of paper says. It is an extract from one of the United States government reports in the Indian Department, and it relates to a case of fever which caused the death of the celebrated Indian chief, Wolf Tusk. I am not sure that I am doing quite right in telling this story. There may be some risk for myself in relating it, and I don't know exactly what the United States government might have in store for me if the truth came to be known. In fact, I am not able to say whether I acted rightly or wrongly in the matter that I have to tell you about. You shall be the best judges of that. There is no question but Wolf Tusk was an old monster, and there is no question either that the men who dealt with him had been grievously, but then there is no use in my giving you too many preliminaries. Each one will say for himself whether he would have acted as I did or not. I will make my excuses at the end of the story. Then he read the slip of paper. I have not a copy of it, and have to quote it from memory. It was the report of the physician who saw Wolf Tusk die, and it went on to say that about nine o'clock in the morning a heavy and unusual fever set in on that chief. He had been wounded in the battle of the day before, when he was captured, and the fever attacked all parts of his body. Although the doctor had made every effort in his power to relieve the Indian, nothing could stop the ravages of the fever. At four o'clock in the afternoon, having been in great pain, and, during the latter part, delirious, he died, and was buried near the spot where he had taken ill. This was signed by the doctor. "'What I have read you,' said the physician, folding up the paper again, and placing it in his pocketbook, "'is strictly and accurately true. Otherwise, of course, I would not have so reported to the government.' Wolf Tusk was the chief of a band of irreconcilables, who were now in one part of the West and now in another, giving a great deal of trouble to the authorities. Wolf Tusk and his band had splendid horses, and they never attacked a force that outnumbered their own. In fact, they never attacked anything where the chances were not twenty to one in their favor, but that, of course, is Indian warfare, and in this Wolf Tusk was no different from his fellows. On one occasion, Wolf Tusk and his band swooped down on a settlement where they knew that all the defenders were away, 
and no one but women and children were left to meet them. Here one of the most atrocious massacres of the West took place. Every woman and child in the settlement was killed under circumstances of inconceivable brutality. The buildings, such as they were, were burnt down, and when the men returned, they found nothing but heaps of smoldering ruin. Wolf Tusk and his band, knowing there would be trouble about this, had made for the broken ground where they could so well defend themselves. The alarm, however, was speedily given, and a company of cavalry from the nearest fort started in hot pursuit. I was the physician who accompanied the troops. The men whose families had been massacred, and who were all mounted on swift horses, begged permission to go with the soldiers, and that permission was granted, because it was known that their leader would take them after Wolf Tusk on his own account, and it was thought better to have everyone engaged in the pursuit under the direct command of the chief officer. He divided his troop into three parts, one following slowly after Wolf Tusk, and the other two taking roundabout ways to head off the savages from the broken ground and foothills from which no number of United States troops could have dislodged them. These flanking parties were partly successful. They did not succeed in heading off the Indians entirely, but one succeeded in changing their course and throwing the Indians unexpectedly into the way of the other flanking party, when a sharp battle took place, and during its progress, we in the rear came up. When the Indians saw our reinforcing party come towards them, each man broke away for himself and made for the wilderness. Wolf Tusk, who had been wounded, and had his horse shot out from underneath him, did not succeed in escaping. The two flanking parties, now having reunited with the main body, it was decided to keep the Indians on the run for a day or two at least, and so a question arose as to the disposal of the wounded chief. He could not be taken with the fighting party. There were no soldiers to spare to take him back, and so the leader of the settlers said that as they had had enough of the war, they would convey him to the fort. Why the commander allowed this to be done, I do not know. He must have realized the feelings of the settlers towards the man who had massacred their wives and children. However, the request of the settlers was acceded to, and I was ordered back also, as I had been slightly wounded. You can see the mark here on my cheek. Nothing serious, but the commander thought I had better get back to the fort, as he was certain there would be no more need of my services. The Indians were on the run, and they would make no further stand. It was about three days' march from where the engagement had taken place to the fort. Wolf Tusk was given one of the captured Indian horses. I attended to the wound in his leg, and he was strapped on the horse so that there could be no possibility of his escaping. We camped the first night in a little belt of timber that bordered a small stream, now nearly dry. In the morning I was somewhat rudely awakened, and found myself tied hand and foot, with two or three of the settlers standing over me. They helped me to my feet, then half carried and half led me to a tree, where they tied me securely to the trunk. "'What are you going to do? What's the meaning of this?' I said to them, in astonishment. "'Nothing,' was the answer of the leader. "'That is, nothing, if you will sign a certain medical report which is to go to the government. You will see, from where you are, everything that is going to happen, and we expect you to report truthfully.' "'but we will take the liberty of writing the report for you.' "'Then I noticed that Wolf Tusk was tied to a tree "'in the manner similar to myself, "'and around him had been collected a quantity of firewood. "'This firewood was not piled up to his feet, "'but formed a circle at some distance from him, "'so that the Indian would be slowly roasted. "'There is no use in my describing what took place. 
"'when I tell you that they lit the fire at nine o'clock, "'and that it was not until four in the afternoon that Wolf Tusk died, "'you will understand the peculiar horror of it. "'Now,' said the leader to me when everything was over, "'here is the report I've written out, "'and he read to me the report which I have read to you. "'This dead villain has murdered our wives and our children. "'If I could have made his torture last for two weeks, I would have done so. "'You have made every effort to save him by trying to break loose.' "'and you have not succeeded. "'We are not going to harm you, "'even though you refuse to sign this report. "'You cannot bring him to life again, thank God, "'and all you can do is put more trouble "'on the heads of men who have already, "'through red devils like this, "'had more trouble than they can well stand "'and keep sane. "'Will you sign the report?' "'I said I would. "'And I did. "'To repeat, the report read, "'that about nine o'clock in the morning "'a heavy and unusual fever set in on that chief.' He had been wounded in the battle of the day before, when he was captured, and the fever attacked all parts of his body. Although the doctor had made every effort in his power to relieve the Indian, nothing could stop the ravages of the fever. At four o'clock in the afternoon, having been in great pain, and, during the latter part, delirious, the chief died and was buried near the spot where he had taken ill. Thanks for joining us, everyone, at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And make sure to catch The Return of Tarzan over at 1001 Stories for the Road. It's a terrific story, and you don't want to miss it. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.